Hey, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Church Wood Forest. We want to welcome you to our podcast today. Our mission at Restoration is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So that happens in a lot of ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open the Word of God and we explore the application and the truth of how God's Word can be applied to our lives. And so today, I hope that you enjoy this message from God's Word. Hey, we don't want this in any way to be a replacement for church. Let it be a supplement for you. But if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us any week at 8 o'clock, 9.45, and 11.30. We hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to Restoration. So uh, God called me to pastor a church in February of 2013. Uh, I was coming out of a season of brokenness. I was at Men's Advance with Wood's Edge, uh, sitting in the back on a Saturday night. And it was very clear to me that God was saying, I want you uh, to pastor a church that was overwhelming to me, thought it was in New York City. We spent all of 2013 uh, selling our house and really kind of thinking through uh, uh, what it would look like to move to New York. We tried every way we could throughout the last part of 2013 to do that, and uh, it didn't seem to be working out. And uh, then it became apparent in early 2014 through uh, Jeff Wells uh, at Woods Edge that he was wanting us to stay here and plant uh, through them And on April 1st, 2014, uh, in my journal, 3 a.m. in the morning, uh, I had these words written. I was in Jeremiah 33, and it was all about the restoration of Israel, Uh, restoration of Israel coming out of exile and God doing something new in them. And and God very clearly said to me, uh, your restoration is complete. Now go be restoration for others. And he told me that the name of the church he wanted me to plant would be named Restoration. And a couple of the things that he said specifically was, it will be a place where marriage was, will be restored, where addictions will be healed. And uh, um, it's just been pretty incredible to look over the last eight years. Uh, someone grabbed me in the lobby after church to say, hey, I want you to know that our marriage has been restored because of Restoration Church. And so I know that um, those are some of the things uh, that have happened as a result of restoration. And so I'm super, super humbled by that. But I also think about uh, in 2014, I'm writing this down, but there was some opposition in my mind to planting a church. So here were a couple of opposition points. Uh, First of all, uh, I've never planted a church before. Um, I was a part of a church that had already planted that I kind of jumped in early on and so got to be a part of that. But I wasn't a church planner. Never pastored a church ever in my life. Uh, In fact, I I didn't have the formal education of a pastor. Um, I left the University of North Texas as a fifth-year sophomore and and, uh, to get married to the love of my life, Yvonne, and I just knew I was going to go back uh, to school at some point, and that was 32 years ago. And so uh, when this call on my life, um, I felt like, God, this is what you want me to do, but it was also uh, pretty... Uh, daunting because I looked at, at some, some blockades to the path that he had put in front of me. So we've seen in the book of Genesis this uh, generational covenantal blessing. It began with Abraham. Uh, it's been passed down through the family, through Isaac, Jacob, all of his sons. And one of the themes we've seen is that God spoke blessing over them and he spoke through dreams and visions. 
So if you remember in chapter 15, God spoke to Abraham in a vision concerning the covenant. He spoke to Jacob in a dream in Genesis 28. When he was on the run, remember, uh, as a deceiver, he's running from his brother and yet God said, hey, you're the one. You're the one by which this blessing is gonna be passed forward. Uh, Remember when Laban was chasing Jacob a little bit later, he came to him in a dream and said, do not harm Jacob. And the last 14 chapters of Genesis are pieced together by dreams he gave the 11th son, Joseph, and God's fulfillment of those dreams. And so uh, the story of Joseph is actually the biggest piece of the pie in the book of Genesis. The last 14 chapters are all about the story of Joseph. And and here's what's that's really interesting because uh, there's an inordinate amount of time spent on this story, the story of Joseph. And guess what? We never hear about him the rest of the Bible where you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who are foundational fathers of the faith and, and, and really the foundation of what we know is Israel. Joseph, who we hear a lot about right here in this book that we call Genesis or the beginning, we don't really hear about him anymore. And so why did the author spend so much time on the story of Joseph? Well, I think it goes back to the original hearers. If you remember the original hearers, uh, they're in the desert. They've been delivered by Moses, 430 years of slavery. And now they've crossed, you know, the Red Sea and they've entered into this time of preparation. They're in the desert. Moses is believed to have penned the book of Genesis. And I think he's really simply saying, in case you wondered how you got here, let me fill you in on the story. Let me fill you in on how we ended up in Egypt and became enslaved in the first place. And so the story of Joseph, um, we're gonna see that, you know, he is called the dreamer. And so what we're gonna see is that God dreamed some God-sized dreams in Joseph and the dreams were a little vague. He didn't really understood, he didn't really understand what these dreams were, but here's what I want you to consider. Um, God is actually dreaming God-sized dreams in you. You have an Ephesians 2.10 calling. You have an assignment that God has placed on your life. Remember, Jesus is the activator of that calling. Before the foundation of the world, he looks around and he sees each and every one of you. He is created on purpose for a purpose. He's got something that he wants for you. And, and he is dreaming those dreams in you. Amen. But here is, uh, uh, are a couple of questions I want you to think about today. Uh, First, how do you hold on to a dream given to you by God when it's met with fierce opposition? So when the going gets tough, how do you hang on to a God-sized dream? How many of you have ever felt like God's put a dream in your life? Anybody? Okay. Some of you are afraid to raise your hand. I'm not going to call on you. I'm not gonna say, stand up and tell us your dream. What's your dream, right? Uh, No, but I mean, I think for a lot of us, we would say, man, I feel like God has called me to something, but but then you have felt this opposition over and over. Here's another question. How do you respond when everything in the physical seems to be moving in the opposite direction of the dream that God's placed on your life? Man, God's called you to something and yet you find yourself uh, moving in the other direction uh, because of circumstances in your life. You ever felt that way? Yes. So here's what we know. 
while God is dreaming big dreams in your life, the enemy is doing everything that he can to destroy what God is trying to institute. So the enemy stands in fierce opposition to the dream God has placed in your life. John 10.10 says it very well, that, that he wants to steal the dream. He wants to snatch the dream before it can take root. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So he wants to destroy, discredit. He wants to do whatever he can to keep you from the dream that God has placed in your life. First Peter 5.8 says he's a lion. Not only does he want to still kill and destroy the dream, he wants to devour the dream. He wants to take it and chew you up and spit you out. So every morning when your feet hit the floor, God has an assignment on your life. And know this, the enemy has an assignment on your life too. The flesh is at war with the spirit. But here's the good news. The enemy only has the power you give him. If you're taking notes, please write that down. The enemy only has the power you give him. Now, some of you are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Satan's powerful. Man, he's powerful because he's a propaganda machine and he's got you convinced that he can keep you in your place. First John 4, 4 says this though, greater is the one that is in you than he that is in the world. So here's what that means. When you said yes to Jesus, you now have the God of the universe coursing through your veins. Now the spirit of the living God is living in you. So here's the question, who's greater, the spirit of the living God or an enemy who is just trying with everything that he can to convince you of who you're not? Thank you, that was really not for you to answer, but that's cool. You're right, thank you. So God has a dream for you and the harvest comes for those who persevere. For those who persevere, it's, it's, we talked about this whole principle of sowing and reaping a couple of weeks ago that Galatians 6, 9, he says, listen, don't grow weary for doing good. Man, keep pursuing the dream that God has placed in your life for he is going to bless you at the proper time. You will reap a harvest. When? If you don't give up. If you don't give up. Fierce opposition, it's there. Let there be light. (laughs) Okay, so let's look at this narrative of Joseph's life. We're in Genesis chapter 37. Starting with verse one. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed in the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Okay, so we're picking up the story a little later in Jacob's life. If you remember last week, we talked about Jacob. Uh, uh, He finally had this reckoning with God. Uh, He had run from Laban. Laban caught up with him, but God said, don't harm him. And so they decide, they make a covenant. Remember, they built this altar and decided they would shake hands and be frenemies. And they went in separate directions. And now Jacob has to go and face his brother who he had deceived 20 years before. He ends up in this wrestling match with God. And remember, God broke his hip and he kept wrestling said I will not go till you bless me and we said really he had already blessed him 
And yet God said, hey, get up. It's time to go face your brother. And so he goes, in Genesis 33, he meets his brother who had forgiven him a long time ago. They hug, they kiss. And now we, we've moved forward now into chapter 37 and they're living in the land of Canaan, the land that Abraham had promised to Abraham years before. And so now we're introduced to Joseph. Remember, Joseph was the son of Rachel. Uh, Rachel has two sons. She has uh, Joseph, the 11th son that Jacob had. Remember, he had uh, 12 sons with four wives. And, and uh, uh, Joseph was the one that was born to Rachel, who was his favorite wife. And then right before she dies, she has another son, Benjamin. And, and now we see that uh, Joseph at this point, he's 17, he's a teenager. He was a shepherd with his older brothers. And the text says a little bit about Joseph's character here. And he was a good boy. And he was a guy that wanted to do the right thing. A little bit of a justice seeker. Says that he goes to his father and gives a bad report about his brothers. So we don't know what that bad report is. We don't know what it meant when he gave a bad report. Here's what we do know, that Jacob's character has been passed down generationally to his sons. If you go back, um, uh, well, I don't wanna get caught up on this, but uh, uh, remember a couple of weeks ago, I said this and I want to remind you, uh, I'm not sure about generational curses. There are some streams of faith uh, in, in evangelicalism that believe that uh, there are generational curses that can be passed down. And I'm not really sure about that, but I know this for sure. Your kids are watching you. Okay, so if you want to talk about things that are passed down, learned behaviors are passed down right? So your kids are watching all the time. They're looking at how you deal with conflict. They're looking at how you do marriage, how you treat your spouse. They're looking at who you are on your job. Do you cut corners? Do you work hard? Uh, your work ethic is passed down to them. The way you interact with others, what you do when you're behind closed doors, when you're not out for the world to see, your kids see all of that. And so I'm not sure about generational curses, but I am sure about learned behavior. If you're a hothead, there's a very good chance that your kids are gonna be hotheads because they're watching you and how you respond to things when things don't go your way. If you're impatient, there's a good chance they may be impatient. Do you see that correlation? So Jacob's sons had already shown that they were prone to taking matters into their own hands. They had one sister, her name was Dinah. In Genesis chapter 34, she is sexually assaulted by a guy. Jacob finds out about it and really doesn't do much about it. And so the sons take matters into their own hands. You can go back and read it on their own because it involves uh, circumcision, it's painful. And they devise a plan and carry it out and they take these guys out. They, 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 they kill an entire village of people because of what one man did to his daughter. And it was genius, by the way, the way that they did it. I'm not saying it's right, but it was genius, all right? And so, and, but, but, but here's the thing. I think you're genius the way you take matters into your own hands sometime. Man, I was in counseling and you're like, and then I did this and this. I'm like, man, that is like a new level of dumb. Genius, <laughs> but not really smart. Um, but we see that they were prone to doing the wrong thing. 
And guess what? So am I and so are you. But look what happens here. Verse three, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So notice first that Jacob and Israel are used interchangeably. Remember the other thing that happened in Genesis 32, when God blessed him, he changed his name. Remember he changed his name from Jacob, from deceiver to Israel, struggled with God and prevailed. And so now I think the author Moses is just reminding us who we're dealing with. He's reminding us, hey, Jacob, but he's also called Israel. And I love that he uses it interchangeably here. And Jacob definitely favored Joseph, just like he favored Rachel. So I believe that part of the reason that he favored Joseph is because Rachel was his favorite and he was glad that they were finally able to have a biological child together. But it says he made a robe for him. Now, if you grew up in church in Sunday school, maybe you had a flannel board and remember the Joseph in the coat of many colors, right? I mean, uh, isn't there a musical, the Technicolor, Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, right? So it really doesn't say that it's a coat of many colors. It says it's an ornate robe. So just think this, uh, you know, full length robe that he's wearing and he's rocking it, right? So just think, he's taking a lot of pride in the fact that my dad loves me enough to make this for me and so I'm gonna wear it. I'm gonna wear it everywhere I go. And so he's walking around among his brothers wearing this robe and it says his brothers hated him and couldn't find a nice thing to say about him. I mean, this is a picture of sibling rivalry, right? How many of you have a, a sibling, a brother or sister? How many of you at some season in your life hated your brother or sister? Yeah, it's, yeah, okay. I, th I think we've all kind of thought that at times, right? Man, I hate them. And we don't really mean it, but we mean it, you know? And, and sibling rivalry, is, it's real. It's real. Did I just say rivalry? <laughs> I think I did. Sibling rivalry. Yeah, it's, it's real. And we look back, Cain and Abel, they had it going on, right? There was some sibling rivalry there. Uh, Jacob and Esau, same thing. And now we're seeing it again. And we've seen throughout the book of Genesis that there are themes that keep recurring, right? And guess what? The themes still recur today. That there's this thing that maybe you feel like that you are not the favorite child in your family, that you feel less than in some way. And so you hold on to that and you create your own narrative. And this is what the brothers were doing. Now there was a robe that spoke volumes. But at the end of the day, they saw it and they hated him for it. So verse five, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up, rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream, because of what he said. So uh, in today's culture, we call this EQ, emotional intelligence, all right? So this is a 17-year-old kid. 
He has a dream and he's thinking, hey, let me run this up the flagpole with my brothers and see how it goes. Hey, I had a dream and you were all bowing down to me. How do you think that was gonna go? Joseph, read the room. Your brothers hate you. And now he comes with this dream and wants to process this dream with them and they cannot see past their hate. All they want is him to be dead. And the text didn't give us any indication that Joseph was cocky. I think he's just kind of trying to let them know, hey, here's what's going on in my relationship with the Lord. Last night he gave me this really weird dream. I don't know what to make of it. So often God will give you a dream for your life. He may give you a scripture that he highlights that confirms to you that this is something that, that he's wanting to do. You read something, have you ever had a, a verse of scripture jump off the page and you know that it's just for you? And maybe you take it to a, a mentor and they confirm it. Yes, I feel like this is God's call on your life or, or, or you feel like the Spirit's saying something to you and then it's confirmed through scripture. Again, scripture is a final authority. God never contradicts himself. But maybe you've heard that God has spoken something, given you a dream for your life, but maybe it's vague and unclear and you wanna process it with someone. It seems important based on this text to process your God dreams with the right people, right? So you probably don't need to process your God dreams with someone that hates you. Let's start there and work backwards from there. Um, I, I remember in, in 2013 when I felt this call to uh, plant a church, uh, my spiritual mentor, Jeff Wells, pastor of Woods Edge, the one who I affectionately referred to as the one who fired me, um, I, uh, I, I, I sat with him and in tears was just telling him this uh, story of how I felt like God was calling me to pastor. And I was really expecting him to pat me on the head and go, oh, young Padawan, you know, (laughs) that is not what God has for you. Because again, I didn't have the education of a pastor. uh, And and really in my mind, I'm like, coming out of a season of brokenness, who would follow me in the first place? And Jeff looked me in the eye and he said, hey, I affirm it in you. In fact, um, this version of you is a version I can get behind. So not only do I affirm it, man, when you do this, Woods Edge will get behind it. And oh, man, glad I called that guy, right? <laughs> that, 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 that man, right place at the right time, that, that he was helping stoke the fires of the dream that God had placed in my life. And Joseph's brothers were clearly not in the right headspace to process this dream with Joseph. In, in fact, it, it fueled their hatred But that's not all. Verse nine, then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream that this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Bro, (laughs) read the room. When he told his father as well and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous but his father kept that matter in mind. 
So he has his second dream, sun, moon, 11 stars, all bowing down. And even his dad rebuked him and had a hard time buying into the dream. Jacob, the one who God dreamed a big dream in him when he was living in deception. And yet when the time came for his son, Joseph, who seemed to have some pretty stellar character, had a dream that God had dreamed over him. He was a naysayer. It's pretty crazy. Surprising that he couldn't see that God was preparing Joseph for something great. But it does say that Jacob kind of fouled it away. Look at verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring words back, bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. So he's sending him basically to spawn his brothers. Hey, you've given me a bad report before. Go check on them and see what they got going on. And you know what they say, snitches get snitches, right? So, so, so Joseph Robe wearing Joseph, who God has dreamed a big dream, is now going to find his brothers to check out what they're doing, to spy on them and to bring word back to his dad. So when Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers, found them in Dothan. But when they saw him at a distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him, throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So this escalated quickly. Right? I mean, but again, this is Genesis 4. This is Cain and Abel. That escalated quickly. God rejects Cain's offering, and so Cain takes it on himself to kill his brother Abel. And here, these brothers are looking on him with such spite, with such jealousy, that they would rather see him dead than live out the dream that God has placed in his life. Is jealousy blinding? For some of you, your jealousy over someone else's God dream is the very thing keeping you held captive today. Because in, in your mind, you look at someone else's dream, you look at someone else's gift set, the thing that God's called them to, and you want what they have. And we think about 1 Corinthians 12. It's such a beautiful passage. It tells us uh, that the eye is as important as the ear, that the, the foot and, and the hand, they are, they are equally as important. Yes. That, the, that the spleen is every bit as important as the heart. Yes. That every bit of it works together in the body of Christ. And so know this big dream, that phrase, big dream, it's subjective. Because the dream that he dreams in you, it's, it should be big to you. It should be overwhelming to you. But so many of us can't stay in our lane, spiritually speaking, and allow God to dream the big dream in us because we want what somebody else has. Amen. 
And know this, jealousy can make us so angry, so blind that we begin to live it out in unhealthy ways. And his brothers, they seem coming from a long way off. And it's not just, hey, let's shun him. It's let's kill him. Just think about their jealousy. It was two levels. I think they were jealous for their father's affection. They see that robe and, and the implication is, why doesn't my dad love me? Some of you feel this thing of that. Some of you have a, a bad relationship with uh, your father and you wonder why he doesn't love you the way that you want or need to be loved. Jealous for the father's affection. And two, and equally as important, I think they were jealous because they didn't have their own dream to live for. I think Joseph was vocal about what God was uh, saying to him, the dream that God had placed on his life. And I think they looked at it because nothing in the Bible says anything about their relationship or intimacy with God. And again, we, we talked about that with Jacob. Nothing in the Jacob narrative says that he was God-fearing. It was just God chose him. And I think maybe that was passed down that he didn't have this dynamic relationship with God and maybe his sons didn't either. And when they see someone that God is dreaming big dreams through, um, they didn't like the fact that they didn't have a dream of their own. So they hated on the one who did. Well, let's think about it functionally. Sometimes we look at a God dream and we feel unworthy of the dream. No, I did. Still do a lot of times. You feel unworthy of it or you can't see how it would work because it seems too vague and too big. And so you know what you do? You give yourself to a lesser dream. You dumb down a dream that you can accomplish. And I would venture to say that the church at large, and if it's at large, it's here at Restoration 2, that, that we have a, a big, large cross-section, bigger than we want to admit, of people who have given themselves to a lesser dream because you are not allowing God to dream big dreams in, in, in through you. You're just allowing yourself to do what only you can accomplish. Yes, what if there's something bigger at play? What if there is a God dream, a God assignment that God wants to place on your life, something that only he can do, but you've given yourself to a lesser dream. So look at what happens. When Reuben, older brother, heard this, he tried to rescue them from their hands. Do not take his life, don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. I think functionally, Reuben, I think he wanted to get involved, but he's like, man, this is like, you know, 10 to one. I don't like my odds if I side with Joseph. So if they'll just throw him in a cistern, I'll come back later and rescue him and take him home. His goal was to keep Joseph alive. But look at this. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. They took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. So Joseph came to his brothers and what did they take? They took that identity 
that robe wherein Joseph, they stripped him of that robe and they threw him in a cistern and they threw him in the cistern to die. They tossed him in there hoping that that was the end of Joseph. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So I love here that Judah comes up with an alternate plan. The alternate plan is, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. And he ends it with the feel-good statement. After all, he is our own flesh and blood. Like that makes it better. Let's just sell him into slavery so he can spend the rest of his life as a slave. But we'll protect his life. Yeah, that's jacked up. Look at verse 29. Verse 28. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern, sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. And when Reuben returned to the cistern, he saw that Joseph was not there. He tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't here. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe slaughtered. A goat dipped the robe in blood. They took the robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave, and he wept for him. <laughs> so, deception much? Yes. So, they sell him into slavery. They kill a goat, dip it in blood, take the robe to uh, Jacob and say, hey, I think this is Joseph's robe. And Jacob, when he sees it, is convinced that Joseph is dead. Can you imagine the wailing and mourning. And it says that they were trying to comfort him. What? I mean, think about it. Have you ever been a part of a deception with someone else? Maybe when you were growing up, you know, maybe with your brother or sister, something broke and you're like, hey, let's, let's, you know, cut our fingers, blood promise that we'll never tell another soul. Anybody, is it just me? Yeah, so uh, man, we get in these places where, man, hey, let's, let's make sure we got our story straight, right? That happened a lot in my life, by the way. And this is what's going on. These brothers, they're swearing to each other, hey, never tell a soul. As far as we're concerned, Joseph is dead. Think about that. I mean, does that tell you the state of their heart? How bad is the state of their heart that they are willing to wound their father through false news that his treasured son is dead. And so verse 36 is where we end. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph 
into Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And so can you put yourself in the mind of Joseph for a second? Really doesn't say much about Joseph while this is all happening. He's innocent. He's just showing up because his dad told him to. And, and, and this hate and jealousy that had risen up in the brothers, first they throw him in a cistern and leave him for dead. Can, do you think that he was uh, in the cistern just sitting quietly? No, I'm sure he's crying out for help. Help me. And finally they hear, he hears someone coming and then he looks up and he's like, oh, thank God my brothers, <laughs> Right? the ones who left me for dead. And they pull him out and he's like, finally, they came to their senses. I guess they were just trying to teach me a lesson. And within seconds, he is sold to this uh, slave caravan for 20 shekels. Now he's living in slavery in Egypt. So God gives him two dreams about his future. And now here he is living in captivity estranged from his family. So how was God at work in his life as he was living as a slave after being vocal about his God dream? What do we need to take from this passage today? So there are four things that I want you to think about. So here's number one. It's not whether or not God speaks, but how he speaks. Yes. It's not whether he speaks, but that he speaks. And so uh, uh, the story throughout Genesis is how God was interacting with his people, how he was speaking into their lives. We saw it at the very beginning of the narrative, the first people, Adam and Eve, that, that God is communing with them. Remember, he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He's got relationship. He's having conversations. Even when sin enters the world, he goes and he has conversations with them. He has a conversation with Cain when he was kind of walking him through his disappointment for uh, having his sacrifice being rejected. He had a conversation with Noah about his desire to eradicate people from the earth. Abraham, Hagar, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Leah, Rachel, Laban, Joseph. God spoke to them directly. He spoke to them through angelic messengers. He spoke to them through dreams and vision. But here's the most important thing. He had relationship with his people. So here's the most important thing. This is the book of Genesis. What does Genesis mean? Beginning. So right at the beginning, right at the outset of the Bible, what is God saying to you and me? I want to have a relationship with you. I want to communicate with you, but more than that, I want to interact with you. I want to have conversations with you. And we see it so clearly. And and I think uh, so often we look at it and we just say, oh, well, this is descriptive of the relationship God had with his people early on? And I would say, yes. But I'd also say it's prescriptive about the way that God wants to interact with you and me. Yes, now. 
And I think we get fixated on, well, God doesn't speak to me the way he speaks to you, or he doesn't, he doesn't seem to move in the way that he, he moves in someone else's life. And you know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like that we are looking for somebody else's relationship with God. Here's the thing, get in the secret place with Jesus and know this, the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you become familiar with the way that he wants to communicate with you. Know that the number one way that he's gonna communicate is through his word. He has given us this word to show us his nature, to show us the ways that he communicates. And then he invites us into that same story, into that same narrative where he speaks and we listen, we speak and he listens. And it's this beautiful give and take that in the natural, we call relationship. How cool is that? And so we see it throughout the book of Genesis. He desires relationship. He desires to speak purpose over you. Number two, God's got a big dream for you. God's got a big dream for you. Now again, I said it earlier. Let me, let me uh, say it again to make sure that you get it. Okay, big dream is subjective. The big dream that he has for the person next to you may look bigger or smaller compared to the dream that you know God has placed in your life. But guess what? It's God's dream for them. And we see one of the themes of Genesis is jealousy. And know this, jealousy, the enemy will use jealousy to keep you from the life that God has for you. When you are looking to the left and the right to find your identity, when you're looking to the left or the right and, and, and you say, well, I like what they're doing. I want what they have. God's like, hey, listen, spiritually speaking, I love you. Stay in your lane. Because there's something that I want to dream in you that it's big and it's big to you. It's big for you. And know this, when you're not living in intimacy with Jesus, you can easily begin to look at others who are and become jealous of what you don't have. And so this is a call. The big dreams that he wants to dream in you and through you, begin in the secret place with him. And if you don't feel like that he's dreaming big dreams in you and through you, man, go back to that fundamental relationship. Get in the secret place with him and be a little more like Jacob. Wrestle with God. Say, listen, break my hip. I will not let go until you show me what my next step is with you. But here's the thing, in the absence of a God-sized dream, you will often give yourself to a lesser vision in your life. Will Mancini, author, he put it this way, our heart is made to live a larger story. Having lost that, we do the best we can by developing our own smaller dramas. Look at the things people get caught up in. Sports, hello. Politics, hello. Soap operas, rock bands. Desperate for something larger to give our lives transcendence, we try to lose ourselves in the smallest kind of stories. I would even include, we try to find ourselves in other people's stories. We become obsessed with other people's dreams. 
what if we received that God has a big dream for me? What if you received that God has a big dream for you? The person in your seat that he wants to dream a big dream and he wants to partner with you and what he wants to do. That's Ephesians 2.10, by the way. Yeah, you may get tired of hearing it, but I don't get tired of saying it. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do, which means you, every person in this room, you were created on purpose for a purpose. There's a divine assignment on your life. Jesus is the activator of that purpose. And it's big and it's weighty. So if you don't feel the big and weightiness of your relationship with Jesus, go back to the foundation. There's something big that he wants to do. Number three, expect opposition to the dream that God has placed in your life. Again, the enemy will use whoever or whatever he has to do to discourage, discredit, still ultimately destroy your dream. So expect it. Here's what I would say. If you feel like that God has placed a dream on your life and you don't feel any opposition in your life, number one, it's probably not God's dream. And number two, you're probably not living it. Because here's the thing, when you are fiercely living out the purposes of Jesus, you can expect opposition. Yes. And you know what? It may be opposition in a lot of little ways, a lot of small ways that the enemy will just nip at your heels. So follow the breadcrumbs of the opposition and you'll see, man, the enemy is trying to veer me off the path. And every day of your life, the enemy has an assignment on your life. And if you feel kind of dead right now, kind of bored in your relationship with God, I said it last week, if you're bored, so is he. The God of the universe, the God who in Christ is coursing through your veins has a bigger and better assignment on your life. And you should expect opposition. But greater is the one who lives in you than he that is in the world. And if he's spoken over you, but your circumstances seem to be moving in the other direction. Stand firm, Ephesians 6, and don't give up, Galatians 6, 9. Because Philippians 1, 6, he who created a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's not done yet. He's not giving up on you, so don't give up on him. Then number four, finally, God uses all things for his glory. All things. So spoiler alert, if you've not spent much time at church and you don't know the story of Joseph, um, I'm gonna give away the ending. God's gonna use his time in slavery in Egypt to save the Israelites. And so what his brothers meant for evil, we'll see it, this, this statement that he makes in Genesis chapter 50, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That God will use the worst circumstances in your life for his purposes and for his glory. In fact, I said it last week, your Ephesians 2.10 calling will likely go through your deepest pain. God will take you into your deepest pain. He will heal you and he will use that healing to see other people in the same situations get healed. Come on. James 1 chapter, James chapter 1 verse 2 through 4. Consider joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials of various kinds. For the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance must have its perfect work so that you may be what? Mature and complete, lacking in nothing. 
God's always using our pain for his glory. He's always using that opposition for his glory. Romans 8, 28, I know you know it, for we know that God uses all things. He works all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. He's up to something good, even in the tough things.